Well, good morning. Thank you for standing. Uh, the scripture passage that we're going to read this morning and Pastor Jeff will preach from is Proverbs 18, verses 1 through 8. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning as we will be considering uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verses uh, 1 through 8. Last time uh, I got to preach, I was in uh, uh, Proverbs 17, and I told uh, some stories, some jokes about she-bears, and uh, you seemed to like it, so I'm going to do it again. That's going to be my new thing. That's going to be like my preaching hook. I'm going to write a book called Barely Preaching or something like that. And uh, so... Uh, anyway, at, uh, at my former church, somehow or another, I got into this discussion with uh, uh, some co-workers, and uh, here was the discussion. It was really this, this real intense, fierce uh, debate, uh, and it was the question, who would win in a fight, all right? Who would win in a fight? And this is the kind of discussion that uh, really only guys have, uh, but uh, we were having this discussion, who would win in a fight, and the, uh, the two... Uh, different uh, combatants, if you will, were a grizzly bear and a mountain lion. A grizzly bear versus a uh, mountain lion. Now, here were the parameters of that conversation, all right? So we, we clearly laid out some parameters, and, uh, and we said, okay, we're talking about grizzlies versus mountain lions. We're not talking about black bears versus uh, African lions or something like that. It's not like Mufasa or Aslan versus uh, Winnie the Pooh or something like that. All right, so grizzlies versus mountain lions. The second thing we said is we're talking about all things being equal, all right? We're not talking about one sneaking up on the other, one's not protecting its cubs, one isn't actually like some sort of sentient mutant with access to a machine gun, all the kind of things that people play to uh, make their argument. And so this was the discussion, uh, and it shouldn't, frankly, have taken that long at all, all right? There's an objectively true answer, and that is grizzly. If you're thinking in your mind right now, a mountain lion would win, you're wrong. You should be embarrassed. You should be ashamed. Don't ever tell anybody that you actually thought that. The answer is a grizzly bear. But uh, one of my coworkers, uh, he's not that smart. He's not that wise. And so he said it was a mountain lion. And, uh, and so even whenever we started talking about the relative size and speed and strength and all of these sorts of things, he was still convinced that a uh, mountain lion would win because he's a fool and he doesn't listen to rebuke and those kinds of things. So I asked him, uh, I asked him, you know, what would it take? What would it take for you to admit that you're wrong in, uh, in this? I said, do I need to like contact a zoologist or a 
biologists who specialize this in this or something? And, uh, you know, do we need to go and try to, like, round up a grizzly versus mountain lion and put him into an octagon? Like, what, what is it going to take for you to actually agree with me? And I wasn't willing to agree with him. And, uh, and so he said, you know, that would work if you got a biologist or a zoologist or something. Or he said, if you just find a park ranger. He said, a park ranger, uh, and, uh, and I'll take that as gospel. And so I said, okay, great. Little did he know that uh, my mom had a childhood friend who is a park ranger at Yellowstone National Park. And, uh, and so I got my mom to write her and uh, ask her her informed opinion on this very pressing thing. So instead of doing whatever it is that park rangers is doing, instead she's doing this for us. And, uh, and so uh, she has all of these park ranger buddies. And so she then asks all of her park ranger friends, right? So uh, she asks over 20 people this question, who would win in a fight, grizzly bear versus mountain lion? And everyone except for one said grizzly bear. And it wasn't even close. The vast majority of them said it's not even a fair fight, it's not even close. And the one person who said a mountain lion would win said, I think so, but I'm not sure. And that was the newest park ranger. So I felt super vindicated, super justified. So I humbly go to my friend, and I share the results with him. Uh, and, uh, and so he repents. He recants. He, uh, and, uh, and so I think the argument is over, but the argument is never over between guys. And, uh, and so he, this buddy, and, uh, and his family go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is uh, near where Yellowstone is, uh, not for the purpose of just disproving me. I don't think, but maybe. Uh, but anyway, they go on family vacation. They get out there, and he meets a scientist, and he asks the scientist this question, and the scientist says, a mountain lion. And he comes back, and he says, I want to uh, recant my, my, you know, repentance or whatever, or my confession. And, uh, and so I said, okay, who is this guy? He says, well, he's a scientist. What's his degree in? You know, is, is he a zoologist? Is he a biologist? Is he even a, even a veterinarian or something like that? He says, no, 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 he's got an earth science degree in geology. The study of rocks! That's like uh, Jerry trying to perform open-heart surgery because he's got a doctorate or something like that. And so, uh, anyway, the reason I'm telling this story is not because my friend is a fool. Uh, he's actually one of the most godly, humble, just uh, gracious and generous men uh, that I've ever met. That's not the point. The point is because it's kind of a silly anecdote or illustration of a number of the themes that we'll see in our uh, sermon this morning, in the text uh, this morning. A few things uh, that we see, breaking out against sound judgment, uh, expressing an uninformed opinion, walking into a fight, taking no actual pleasure uh, in actual understanding. And, uh, and so, that's the point of that story. But we've been discussing Proverbs for the past few weeks uh, now, and we've seen over and over this contrast, these kind of two paths that the author is laying out. One is the path of wisdom leading toward life. The other is the path of folly or foolishness leading towards uh, death and condemnation and these uh, sorts of things. And we've talked before about the fact that uh, foolishness in the book of Proverbs is not an intellectual assessment. Uh, it's not those with low IQ. It's not those who are unlearned. It's not those sorts of things. Uh, that foolishness in the book of Proverbs is a moral uh, assessment. It's an assessment on someone's morality, whether or not they are actually in relationship with the revealed revelation of God uh, the Father or, or Yahweh, the triune God. And, uh, and so we've seen this over and over. You can be brilliant and yet foolish, as Proverbs is talking about, if your life is not subject 
uh, to divine wisdom. And, uh, and so most of our passage this morning, in talking and continuing this theme of wisdom, most of our passage this morning is really going to focus on uh, wisdom in particular that we see with our words. Uh, if you will, it's kind of like picking out fruit, and you go, and depending on the type of fruit, you look at it. There's certain ways that you can tell whether it's ripe or not. Uh, likewise, the tongue is a uh, way that we can manifest whether we are wise or not, and that's uh, the bulk of our passage this morning, kind of a, uh, a connecting theme through all of these eight verses that seem somewhat disconnected, uh, is most of them kind of are related to the use of words and uh, how the wisdom, uh, how the wise are going to manifest that in their speech. And so I want to pray, and then we'll dive into the text uh, together. I want to ask just first that you would pray for yourself, just wherever you are. Ask that the Lord would uh, calm your heart and your mind, take away distraction, allow you to be impacted. And you pray that for those around you as well. Ask that the Lord would give grace to your husband or wife, your kids, your mom or dad, the stranger sitting in front of you or next to you. And then lastly, would you pray for me that the Lord would give me boldness and faithfulness to His text. Father, we want to love You. We want our lives to be submitted. We don't want to be fools. We want to be wise. We want to look more like Your Son and trust Him. And so I pray this morning that You would use Your Word to conform us into His image. So I ask now that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in Your Word. Unite our hearts to fear Your name and satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love. We ask these things because You're good and You do good. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, verse 1 of Proverbs 18. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So what does it mean to isolate yourself in this context? Well, this is not some sort of a critique against uh, introverts or something like that. All the introverts in the room can breathe a collective sigh of relief. Not too loudly, though, so no one around you will notice. I'm an introvert. The rest of the staff are extroverts. That's why I have my own office, so that I can get work done and so that I don't go crazy. I said this before in theological equipping class, but when Zach is exhausted, he wants to hang out. When I'm exhausted, I want to hang Zach, all right? This is, though, this is not some sort of veiled critique about introverts. This has nothing to do with Myers-Briggs or anything uh, like that. It isn't saying that we have to be around people 100% of the time. It isn't about introversion. It's about individualism. It's about isolationism. It's about a, uh, not a personality type. It is about a heart disposition. It's about a type of heart that longs to be isolated and individualized. Americans love us some individualism, right? We have this sort of cultural myth uh, and sort of this epic uh, legend of we love the cowboy that rides away at the very end all by himself out into the wilderness. Early settlers here in Collin County got 640 acres. Imagine that. If you wanted to go get sugar or something like that, you're riding a horse for like an hour to go and get it. We love the idea of being alone. 
And sometimes we see this infatuation with individualism and isolationism. Sometimes it, we see it taken all the way to an extreme. So some of you are familiar with Ted Kaczynski? Who's Ted Kaczynski? The Unabomber, right? And so sometimes we have this uh, sort of, uh, we see this isolationism that goes all the way to this extreme perversion. Someone living out in the wilderness, writing manifestos, attacking the government, uh, all of those uh, kinds of things. That's not the corner, uh, that's not the danger that's lurking around the corner uh, for most of us. I'm not concerned that the bulk of our congregation uh, are going to go off into that sort of extreme isolationism. Some of you probably, but the vast majority of us probably are not going to go into that sort of extreme. But I think that uh, the danger for us is going to be much more subtle and much more universal. I think every one of us in this room is in danger of the warning of this passage. So I want to talk about that for a moment. Imagine that you're living in ancient Israel when this text is being written. Imagine that you're living in ancient Israel and you decide, I want to move outside the context of the covenant community. I want to move outside the context of my fellow uh, Israelites. I want to move out somewhere into the wilderness. Think about all the physical dangers uh, that you would face. Disease, raiders, bandits, lions, and especially she-bears, right? All of these different physical dangers that you face. Well, now, what uh, the text is saying is that you and I are in danger that is just as intense as this. It's just not physical danger so much as it is spiritual danger. The rejection of wisdom, because wisdom treasures and doesn't just tolerate community. That's why Isolation is a breaking out against sound judgment, as the text says. It's going against the means of grace that God has given for our protection, for our health, for our uh, security. It's saying that there is a danger in remaining on the periphery of the covenant community just as there is danger in living on the outskirts of society. You see, wisdom is going to know that there is safety, there is security, there is hope, there is help in being surrounded by others who know you and love you. And that part's important. Not just being surrounded by others, but being surrounded by others who actually are a part of your life that you're intimately acquainted with. Not just that know your name or a few facts about you, but people who are intimately involved in your life, who have permission and desire to speak into it. Proverbs eleven fourteen says this, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Proverbs 24.6 says the uh, same thing, a similar thing. For by wise guidance you can wage your war in abundance of counselors. There is victory. So these passages are going to assume not merely the presence of community, but the presence of counselors. And in order for there to be counselors, there must be counsel. There must be life-on-life, heart-on-heart discussion. Counselors are no good without counsel. This is why this passage has nothing to do with introverts versus extroverts. Extroverts can just as easily isolate themselves emotionally and spiritually. So likewise, it's possible for us to come to church each and every week, even go to community group each and every week, and not really be involved in gospel-centered community, not really be involved in uh, running from the implications of this text, the warnings of this text, because you're not emotionally involved, really. You're not really accountable 
to anybody else. You're not confessing your sin often to others. You're not asking for other people's opinions before you make decisions. You're not viewing your life through a collective lens. You're not contributing to the physical and spiritual needs of the community around you. You're just desiring and consuming the various benefits of the community, but not contributing to the cost of the community. So again, none of us are, on. I don't think, in danger of living on the outskirts of society. None of us are in danger of moving to some sort of bunker in Oklahoma or something like that. But that doesn't mean that we're not in danger of doing what this verse is warning us against if we're not walking in deep and meaningful and raw and authentic community. If there aren't others who deeply know your fears and failures and struggles and sins and desires and dreams and temptations. And I don't just mean your spouse. If there are not others that aren't involved in your life on this heart level, you're in danger of isolating yourself, breaking out against all sound judgment. So don't move too quickly beyond the sting, the potential sting of this verse. Don't assume that this isn't talking about you because you're a people person or because you come to church every week or something like that. I think that those who are in the most danger of uh, falling prey to this warning are those who don't even know that they're in that danger. See, the person who's utterly alone knows it. The person who's surrounded by a bunch of acquaintances has no idea. I have a thousand Facebook friends. I'm not thinking that I'm isolating myself. Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So the church is about more than just companionship. It's about brotherhood, sisterhood. It's a fraternal organization and organism. And wisdom knows that there's safety and security and virtue and rebuke and correction and help and abundance of counselors, but there are none of those things if we are isolated emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever it might be. And if we were to be wise, we need to be surrounded by wisdom. We need others to encourage us and others that we can encourage. We need others to disciple us and others that we can disciple. But a fool isn't interested in any of those things as we see in the next verse. Verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. As the isolationist seeks his own desire, so the fool is infatuated with his own opinion. This phrase, expressing his opinion, uh, is, is interesting. It's an idiom uh, in both uh, Hebrew and uh, in Greek. And, uh, and so that uh, uh, idiom kind of comes up, literally it means uncovering his heart. That's what it means in Hebrew, to uncover his heart. And it's typically used of some sort of shameful situation where someone is uncovered shamefully. Uh, and so one of the, the classic examples of that is Noah, uh, after he drinks himself to drunkenness, and then he uncovers himself in his tent. It, uh, it connotes uh, folly and foolishness and shame uh, and so forth. And that's what the fool is doing here. Uncovering his heart uh, is shameful because what's going on in his heart is shameful. This is the irony of folly. It boasts in its shame. It opens its mouth to reveal wisdom, but instead manifests foolishness. Think about this. 50 years ago, if you were a fool, how many people knew it? You had a handful of, you know, family members who knew it. 
that was about it. Now think about all the technological advancements, and you have an opportunity for people all over the world to know you as an individual are foolish. You as an individual are absurd, right? Because there's all this technological advancement. I saw someone uh, online had boasted about the fact that they had eaten a bunch of raw chicken uh, for a bet. And then someone wrote back and said, hey, you're going to get salmonella. And that person said, no, I didn't eat salmon. I ate chicken. Right? There are all kinds of opportunities for you to just express your foolish opinions uh, online. The world has access to the rooftops and the laptops to just shout uh, folly out, hoping that someone is going to listen to their crazy opinions, even if those opinions are demonstrably wrong. I think one of the things that's happened in our culture is there been, has been this blinding of objective uh, versus subjective. What's something that is objective? Something that's objective is just true, right? There's no debate. There's no discussion. Something that's subjective, though, is open for debate. It's just an opinion, right? What, what's happened in our culture is that the things that are objective, the, the, the culture has punted on, and now what is subjective has just so, somehow kind of risen to the ranks, and it's considered uh, to be absolute uh, truth. And, uh, and so it seems like everybody is an expert on everything. Zach mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, that he uh, saw this sign that was posted in a doctor's office that said, don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Don't confuse your geology degree with a zoology degree or something like that. That's where we are today. On a popular level, think about this. On a popular level, no one wants to make arguments. No one wants to read research. No one actually wants to uh, look at things that might disagree with them. If, if, if someone sends you an article that you disagree with, what do you do? You just ignore it. If somebody sends you an article that you agree with, what do you do? You forward it. That's where our uh, world is today. And what makes it uh, even worse in light of the implications of this text, what makes it even worse is that as we become less and less interested in truth, in objective truth, objective reality, as we become less and less interested in these sorts of things, we also become less and less interested in discussion. Just over the past year, I've seen so many people that have tweeted something like, if you voted for so-and-so, end of discussion, we can't be friends. Or if you don't agree with such and such, end of discussion, we can't be friends. Not only is it the end of discussion, but it is the end of thought. It's the end of understanding. It's the end of truth. This is worse than some sort of Orwellian 1984 thought police or something like that. It's the death of understanding. This verse is saying that the fool seeks to open his mouth rather than his ears. You know, this wouldn't be such a problem if our innate opinions were wise, but the Bible says over and over and over again that they're not. That what is innate to us is not wisdom but folly, that we're born with a state of folly. We've seen this over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. We'll talk about it in Romans chapter 1, which we'll say uh, whenever we get to Romans 1 in uh, next month, uh, which will say that the essence of human sin is that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And we've seen it over and over in Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. We've talked about this over and over, that truth and wisdom are extrinsic. 
They're not intrinsic. There's something that, that are alien to us. There's something that come from without us. They're not something that we look for uh, within. We talked about this before, that when you're born, you have a capacity basically to do a few things, to poop, to cry, and to sleep. That's it. Even eating isn't this natural sort of response, which is why we have things like lactation nurses. You really have no capacity whenever you're born for these higher functions, and you're born without the capacity for wisdom. You have to learn wisdom, but folly is natural, which is why we need revelation as we've talked about. And if wisdom is something that's revealed, if something that's not within, then we can't look within for it. We can't look within ourselves. We can't look to the surrounding culture as other people are just looking within because the surrounding culture is going to find truth and true wisdom to be offensive. You don't support a woman's right to do with her body whatever you want. You're offensive. That's foolish in the world's eyes. You honestly believe that certain consensual sexual acts are inappropriate and sinful? That's foolish. That's offensive in the world's eyes. You believe that this book here is inerrant and trustworthy and authoritative and sufficient? You believe that someone rose from the dead? That's offensive. That's foolish from the world's eyes. All these things are folly in the eyes of the world, but the Bible says that what is foolish in the world is wisdom in the kingdom. See, folly biblically is not defined by majority vote or democratic process, or the changing cultural tides. Wisdom and folly are defined and differentiated by God's Word. And the verse is saying that those who are wise desire, they take pleasure in understanding. They love to learn. They long for truth, even when it means that they must repent and admit that they were formerly wrong. They love that. That's part of why the uh, wise love correction, and they love community, as the previous verse said that's partly why it's folly to isolate yourself. A fool rejects correction and thus rejects the community in order to exalt and express his own uh, desires and opinions. And this isn't just a problem in the culture. This is not just some sort of us versus them. This is the way the culture does it, but in the church we do it differently. Now, this is a problem that has pervaded the modern church uh, as well with theological issues like baptism and predestination and church discipline, with moral issues like divorce and remarriage and alcohol and tattoos, with cultural issues like politics. There are two ways that this kind of thing plays out within the church. First is this culture that's averse to discussion. You can't even ask questions within certain churches. The other way, the second way that this can play out is by apathy. We just stop asking questions. We don't care what the Bible says about baptism or predestination or divorce and remarriage. We agree to disagree with our fellow believers even when we haven't considered if God agrees with us or not. So a few diagnostic questions in light of this verse that I think would be helpful for us to think through since we aren't immune to this. First, do you love the voice of truth more than you love your own voice? Do you honestly believe that Scripture is sufficient, inerrant, trustworthy, and of ultimate authority? Do you like, delight in correction and counsel from others? This was a hard one here. When was the last time you actually changed your mind on something of significance? How do you respond when you disagree with someone? Do you just dismiss them, or do you actually seek to understand in case you might be wrong? 
Is being wrong even a possibility in your mind or have you locked your opinion in your heart and thrown away the key? Let's look at verse 3. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. This is, I think, simple enough, and so we won't spend as much time working through it for the sake of time. The main point is that there is consequence, uh, that the consequence of sin is dishonor and uh, disgrace. It doesn't seem that way in our culture. Some of the most foolish and sinful are the most celebrated and accomplished. You can think of politicians or athletes or celebrities, even pastors. Some of the worst pastors in the world have the most disciples. I won't name any names, but you can probably fill in some of the blanks there with people who are foolish and wicked and yet receive honor and applause and seem to be some sort of contradiction to what this verse is saying. And to some degree, this is somewhat novel. We've talked before about how there is something different in our culture where no longer is virtue a part of celebrity. But in another way, there's nothing new under the sun, which is why the Bible is going to ask the question over and over, why do the wicked prosper? It's always been this way, that although there are consequences, it seems like the wicked are free uh, from the consequences. And the answer is that they don't ultimately. The wicked don't ultimately prosper. Contempt, dishonor, and disgrace are eventually coming because what's celebrated in the world is often contemptible in the kingdom, and our desire should be to receive the favor of the king, not fools, which is why the Bible will say over and over not to envy sinners. Those who despise the Lord will be lightly esteemed. There will be an ultimate reckoning, and even if honored now, the wicked will be dishonored and disgraced in time. Our justice may not be perfect, but God's is. So this verse is saying that in order to secure honor, you must retain virtue and wisdom. So we are to pursue wisdom and righteousness for the sake of a good name, not necessarily in the surrounding world, but certainly in the eyes of the king and the citizens of the kingdom. Verse 4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. There are two ways that you can take this. The, the first is called synthetic, and the second is called antithetic. Those are uh, big words. I don't uh, care that you know them, but they're two different ways to describe uh, poetry. When we think of synthetic, we probably think of like motor oil or something like that. But synthetic versus antithetic are two different ways that uh, two parts uh, of Hebrew poetry can relate to each other, two lines in poetry. In synthetic poetry, what's happening is the first part of the line and the second part of the line are parallel. They're synonymous. Basically, A and B are saying the same thing. In antithetic poetry, what's happening is A is contrasted from B. They're opposites. I think what's going on in this passage, although commentaries land on either end, I think what's going on is there's actually a contrast. I think these are actually antithetical. I think we're supposed to read this as the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. That's one idea. Contrasted with that, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And those two things intended to be different. In other words, deep, deep waters and a bubbling brook are intended uh, to be contrasted. Now, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if they're synthetic or antithetic in regards to the overarching point. The overarching point is simply that the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook, that uh, the words of the wise uh, are life-giving and restorative. That's the ultimate point regardless of how uh, but I think it is important to recognize that uh, there is that contrast. So let me tell you why I think there is a contrast uh, there, whereas the fountain is good, but the deep water is bad. 
The reason is because typically in Jewish literature, when you come across this phrase, deep water, it typically connotes something negative. It typically has this negative connotation uh, whenever you run into it. It typically has this connotation of stagnancy, inaccessibility, and sort of foreboding danger. Imagine you can't swim. Would you rather be in shallow water or deep water? Obviously, you'd rather be in shallow water, right? That's kind of the idea here. In Hebrew literature, in general, the idea of deep water has this sort of negative uh, connotation. So I think that what's saying is that uh, as a man's innate opinions are destructive and dangerous, which is what we saw in the previous verses, so are the words of his mouth. As a man's innate opinions are destructive and dangerous, so are the words of his mouth. A few months ago, uh, the Hollis family, uh, Tim is our uh, worship minister, his family and my family, uh, we got to go to Big Bend National Park. This is a, a place, one of my favorite places in the world. My dad took me there uh, just about every year as a kid growing up. And so uh, we did some camping. And by that, I meant we stayed in a lodge because that was the only way I could get my wife to agree to go with us. And, uh, and so we went and we did some camping there in Big Bend National Park. And we did a hike at one point out into uh, the desert. And, uh, and so we went out into the desert to go see this uh, Tanaha. Tanaha is a word that just means kind of like watering hole, uh, refers to kind of like this huge natural cistern formed by uh, water running through a canyon over time. And there's this really famous uh, Tanaha there in Big Bend called Ernst Tanaha, named after uh, uh, an early explorer of the area uh, called Ernst. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, Ernst Tanaha, we're walking out there, and we, uh, we get there, and, and one of the reasons that this is so famous is because it is so deep. Uh, the water in this watering hole is uh, so deep, and so for like 20-something years, I've been going there, and every time I throw in rocks, and it's not filled up with rocks yet, and, uh, and so I imagine hundreds of other people do it uh, as well. And, uh, and so it's so deep, and the sides are so slick. Like, if you fell into that, there's no uh, place for you to grab. This is a weird thing for me to do, but uh, I did it. And uh, there's no place for you to, uh, to grab on. And so, actually, uh, early settlers uh, uh, had occasionally found mountain lions in there. I assume thrown in there by grizzlies, but um, I'm just not going to let it go. And, uh, and so, anyway, uh, it's, this, it's real famous uh, Tanaha, and so we walked out there. We got there, and it was, I mean, I've been there dozens of times. Uh, this was the worst, uh, though. I mean, it was sweltering hot, and that water was putrid. Stagnant, because there's no moving water. It's just sitting there. It's putrid. It smelled absolutely horrible. That's, I think, the idea here of deep waters in this verse, that a natural man's heart is filled with this stagnant, inaccessible sort of water. Imagine if we would have uh, filled our canteens with this water. I mean, probably by the time we get back to the car, we would have been sick because of all of the disease in it. That's what this verse is saying, I think, about the natural man's heart. And that's contrasted with the clear and living water of the wise. The words of the wise are uh, life-giving and perpetual. The wise aren't worried about speaking a ton of words. They're worried about speaking the right words, words that bring healing and hope and encouragement and even rebuke and correction. As the New Testament would say, that it might give grace to those who hear. That's verse 4. Let's look at verse 5. It's not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous 
of justice. We talked about this theme a couple of weeks back in Proverbs 17. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We talked about how it does no good to trade one injustice for another injustice. What have you accomplished? You simply robbed Peter to pay Paul to punish the innocent or protect the guilty. We talked about how justice demands the hard work of actually discerning innocence from guilt. The only way to distinguish justice from injustice is not feeling or opinions, but it's truth, that which corresponds to reality. So we have this responsibility biblically to suspend judgment as we seek justice. I think this verse is saying something similar with a little bit of twist around the idea of uh, impartiality. It's saying justice is intended to be impartial. That's the ideal, at least, which, you'll, which is why you'll typically see representations. If you see a representation of Lady Justice, and she's holding two scales, what does she typically have on her face? A blindfold, right? The idea is that uh, she's not looking at who the plaintiff is, who the defendant is. She's looking at the facts of the case. She's looking at the facts rather than the faces. That's what impartiality means. It's an idiom uh, in both Hebrew and Greek that means this, to lift up the face or to receive the face. I'm more concerned with the face than I am the facts of the case. So to be partial uh, is to look upon someone's face. It's to render judgment on the basis of race or gender or socioeconomic status or whatever else. To be impartial is to simply look at the facts of the case, to search for the truth in spite of who it is that's standing before you. And this goes both ways. There's opportunities for partiality all around us. Chauvinists are partial to men. Feminists are partial to women. Some racists are partial to whites. Some are partial to blacks. Some are partial to any other race. Some are partial to the rich. Others partial to the poor. Some are partial to Republicans. Some to Democrats. Any face can receive favoritism. It's kind of the idea there. There is no end to the prospects for partiality, but Christians are only to be partial to the truth. That's the only thing they're concerned with. They're not concerned with the faces that are before them. They're concerned with the face of truth. And the context here is partiality to the wicked. So think about why. Why might we be partial to the wicked or deprive the righteous of justice? There's a thousand reasons. Greed, lust, sexism, racism, any other form of pride. So it's not good to be unjust. And partiality, biblically, sets the table for injustice. Partiality invites the opportunity for injustice to arise. Just thinking about some of the examples, both biblical and cultural examples that we might see of this, to convict a baker for failing to bake a cake for certain kinds of so-called weddings is unjust. To convict Joseph on the testimony of Potiphar's wife is evil and unjust. Likewise, to tell someone who has actually been abused to just get over it is unjust. To tear apart a baby in its mother's womb is to be partial to the wicked and deprive the righteous of justice. To allow someone to walk free because they can afford better lawyers is partiality. To assume that all whites or all blacks or all rich or all poor or all men or all women or immigrants or whatever are always good or always bad or always right or wrong or whatever is partiality. We see injustices like this every single day in the newspaper. 
because our standard of social justice today is often more concerned with faces than it is with facts, and so truth is some sort of secondary or tertiary concern. So justice is this sort of overarching idea of this verse, and it's this theme that we've seen throughout Proverbs. Again, we preached on it a couple of weeks ago, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that audio if you weren't here. But biblically, justice is not based on feelings or perceptions or preferences, and it isn't partial to anyone. It's blind. It doesn't care who speaks first. It doesn't care who speaks loudest. It cares who speaks truthfully. So it's not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. Justice is good, but any semblance of justice which is not based on the truth biblically is unjust. Let's look at verses 6 through 7. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. This may surprise some of you. It may not, but I had a big mouth uh, growing up. I was uh, an introvert, but I was a super insecure introvert, and so my insecurity was masked with jokes. And, uh, And so when we did senior superlatives in high school, you know, you have the best dressed and best hair and most likely to succeed. And if you look at my high school yearbook photos, you'll realize I didn't win any of those. But I did win class clown, and that wasn't always advantageous. In middle school, uh, there was this guy named uh, Rex, and I thought the name Rex was super funny. And so I told everybody else how funny I thought his name was. And King Rex did not think that his name was all that funny. He thought it was so serious that he actually uh, rode his bike three miles to my house to punch me in the mouth. This is a good example that the uh, words of a fool or a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Speech is this huge theme in the book of Proverbs. Here's just a smattering of what it says. Proverbs 18, 20 through 21, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 10, 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. 12, 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. 13, 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, and he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And then not in Proverbs, but in Ecclesiastes, another uh, book of wisdom literature, it says, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. In other words, the fool doesn't know how to control his tongue. The fool talks and talks and talks himself into trouble. He drowns in the deep waters of his words. When someone cuts the fool off in traffic, he goes on the offensive. When someone rebukes him, he responds with sarcasm and anger. He isn't looking to de-escalate the situation. He's looking to win. There's pride lurking in those deep waters. Or even when the fool isn't fighting, I don't think that the the only application of this is whenever a fool actually gets into some sort of physical or emotional altercation, uh, there are other ways that the the fool can use their words uh, besides just fighting. Even when he isn't fighting, he's talking himself into a corner, his mouth is his ruin, his lips are a snare. 
Have you ever found yourself thinking in the midst of a conversation, I should stop talking, and you didn't? That's folly. That's foolishness. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not a fool, and you might not be, but that doesn't mean that you don't use your mouth foolishly. What's your response when someone cuts you off in traffic? What's your response when someone insults you? How do you respond when your crazy uncle brings up politics around the Christmas table uh, this year? What's your response whenever you've had a super long day and your kids come up to you and they're annoying you with constant uh, requests? Or whenever you stub your toe or whatever it might be, are your words a snare to your soul? Do your lips invite a beating? We'll come back to that here in a moment. For now, let's look at this last verse. 18.8, the words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. We have a buddy who's a uh, church planner in Northern Ireland, and, uh, and so occasionally he'll come back into town and he'll come to services. He's actually been to Parkway before and to our previous church. And uh, the last two times that he's come, we have taken him to an American institution. We've taken him to Babe's Chicken. And uh, if you've never been to Babe's Chicken, you need to go to Babe's Chicken. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, but we kind of do something somewhat mean to him whenever we're there. When he'll go to the bathroom, whenever he gets there, we'll tell the waitress, hey, this guy, for some reason, he always likes to talk with a weird accent. He's not actually Irish. So then uh, whenever he comes back, he's kind of set up for failure because he can't do an American accent. So he's just stuck with the Irish accent which the waitress finds funny the first time she comes to the table, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time, she thinks, this guy's just got something wrong with him. I don't know why. He's, it's actually kind of a, a rude, it's not that funny, and I don't know how to think about it. It's kind of mean. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the idea is that uh, fools have a certain sort of accent. They have a certain distinctive way of speaking, and it isn't necessarily Irish. You can identify them by gossip, arguments, partiality, opinions, all the different things that we've already talked about in the previous uh, verses. The full speech is opinionated rather than informed. The full speech is deep and dark and inaccessibly dangerous. The full speech is partial to certain types of people. The full speech is antagonistic. And here we see a final diagnostic. The full speech is that of a whisperer. This word comes up a few times in the book of Proverbs. In 1628, it says, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And it comes up twice in Proverbs 26, verses 20 through 22. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body, similar to uh, our text uh, this morning. Uh, this past week, the, the staff was talking about the sermon. We always do this in our staff meetings and kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. I talk about uh, what I've been studying, uh, and then the other guys get to kind of say, okay, well, how are you going to handle this? How are you going to handle this? And, uh, and so in the midst of that, uh, Carl asked the question. He said, what's a whisperer? And without missing a beat, Tim jumps up out of his seat, and he runs over, and he puts his face right up next to Carl's ear like this, and he says, a whisperer is someone who speaks really softly. Carl's like, thank you. That's very helpful. That's what I was asking. I don't know what the word whisper means. Is that what this verse is saying? That the words of a whisperer or just someone who speaks softly? Is it saying that we should just be yelling all the time or something like that? Obviously not. What does a whisperer mean? 
any time that you see the word whisper in the Old Testament, uh, it means a grumbler, a complainer, or a gossip. There's no one English word that covers all of those different nuances, so they just use that uh, sort of idea of a whisper to kind of uh, connote all of those uh, ideas. It's typically a combination of all of that, uh, to grumble, to complain, to gossip. So think about it like this. Someone is upset. Someone's upset, all right? And so they grumble, but they grumble privately uh, to somebody else. They whisper their grumblings quietly to others. It's the verbal form of the word that's used to condemn Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 1.27. And you murmured, there, that's the word, you whispered, you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. So even when they aren't publicly accusing Moses, which they do all the time, they're privately murmuring, they're grumbling, they're whispering, they're feasting on their discontentment and disbelief. And the danger is that it feels good. Gossip and grumbling taste good. Otherwise, things like TMZ wouldn't exist and the Kardashians wouldn't be so rich. But it isn't good. It tastes good, but it isn't good. It's like food poisoning. It may taste good going down, but eventually you'll regret it. And I want you to notice something about this text because I think it does something really interesting. It kind of does a 180 on us. Like you might uh, initially read this and just kind of a superficial reading of it, uh, you think, okay, it's saying that we shouldn't grumble, we shouldn't gossip, we shouldn't complain, and that's certainly true. You could exegetically make that point from dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other texts. You shouldn't gossip, you shouldn't grumble, you shouldn't complain, absolutely yes and amen. But that's really not the main point of this text. Notice here, the text is not as much saying that we shouldn't whisper as it is that we shouldn't listen to the whisperer. Notice that. It's from the perspective of it going down into the inner parts of our body. It's that we're receiving it. So maybe you personally never gossip or complain, but are you an outlet for others to do so? If you are, then you're in danger of this verse. You're consuming poisoned food. Remember the person who proudly boasted in eating raw chicken and wasn't worried about salmonella? What if someone were to offer you a dish? What if I were to hand you a dish and say, hey, this is, this is the best recipe ever. It's going to taste delicious. Oh, by the way, there's salmonella in it. Would you be willing to eat it? Of course not. But that's every single dish that's served of grumbling, of complaining, of gossip, of murmuring, of whispering. Every single one is tainted. It's poisoned. Every word of the whisperer. So for us to listen is to walk in folly and sin. You see, the fool not only whispers, the fool not only grumbles, the fool not only complains, but the fool also turns his head at the sound of whispering and leans down so he can hear the whispers. But the wise refuse to listen. And not only that, the wise confronts and corrects the whispers. Biblically, we can't consume it, but we also can't just ignore it. That's not our uh, that's not an opportunity for us as well to just simply ignore the whisperings that are going on around us. We have a responsibility not only to refuse to eat it, to not just leave it on the table untouched, but to send it back to the kitchen with a strong rebuke toward the one who created it or served it. 
So my question is, is that your response? Is that your response to the words of a whisperer? Do you feast on the complaints and grumblings and discontented opinions of others? Or maybe you refuse to listen, but you don't rebuke, you don't send it back. Or do you both refuse and rebuke? Do you push back on the poison and attempt to bring the truth into the light and be an agent for repentance and reconciliation? I'll be honest with you, this is one of those sins that is a struggle for me. I like to listen to gossip. There's certain sins I just hate. Like they, they don't have any appeal to me anymore. Some of them they used to be appealing to me, but the Lord has changed my heart in those areas. But this is one of those that uh, I, I just have to rely on duty more than delight. I have to rely just on the simple fact that the Lord has said that this is destructive and dangerous for me, but there's still something in my heart that finds this uh, to be appealing, and maybe you do too, but the Bible has said not only are we not to be whisperers, but we're not to be those who are an outlet for whispering. This is an area where we might all need grace, not only for our lips and our ears, but also for our hearts. So as we've been working through this uh, past eight verses about words and wisdom, I want to just ask the question, what do, we, what do we do with it? What do we do with all of these sort of somewhat disconnected, uh, short, pithy, proverbial statements? I don't want to be just simply like kind of a third grade teacher or whatever and say, you know, uh, just don't cuss or those sorts of moral imperatives. Don't say bad words. Don't gossip, those sorts of things. How do we read this through a new covenant lens? How do we read this through the cross? Not just kind of preach a proverb and then slap a little Jesus on the back end or something like that. I think this passage, while it does say absolutely a lot about our speech, it says more about our hearts. As the New Testament says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. As adults, we don't simply wash our mouth out with soap because we recognize that the problem is deeper than our mouths. The problem is a heart-level issue. Even if you were to stop gossiping, stop lying, stop arguing, stop cursing, stop whatever it might be, even if you were to do all of that, you haven't really dealt with the underlying issue. You've just dealt with the symptoms, not the sickness. Biblically, the goal isn't just to transform your mouth. It's to have a transformed heart, which in turn will change your tongue. A heart that is content with God's promises doesn't grumble, doesn't murmur, doesn't whisper, it hasn't, doesn't have a need to. A transformed heart is humble and hungry for truth, so it doesn't delight in expressing its opinions, and it can recognize that it's wrong. A transformed heart is at peace with God, and so it's able to be at peace with man. So when someone cuts you off in traffic, it doesn't bother you, because your heart is in a different place. So here's what I want us to think about this morning, that Jesus died for blasphemers. Jesus died for slanderers and gossips and liars and fools, and such were all of us, every single one of us in this room. Those of us who have abused every single four-letter word you can imagine, and those of us who have never once spoken a four-letter word and can't even name them. Those of us whose lips have invited a beating, and those of us who have never uttered an unkind word publicly in their entire lives. Those who speak nothing but opinion and those who don't have an opinion of their own, regardless, the only hope that we have this morning is grace and mercy and love. So the question is, are you in your heart blown away by God's grace this morning? 
If so, that will begin to transition your heart and transform your heart, which will then in turn begin to transition and transform your speech. And even if you are a fool this morning, even if you don't know Jesus, my encouragement to you is not just stop acting a fool as if you can do that. I'm telling you instead to embrace the only one who ever mirrored perfect wisdom. The only one to perfectly control his tongue. The only one to fully and truly delight in understanding and true justice. Look to Christ, who not only lived a perfect life, but died that we might be saved from our blasphemy and judgmentalism and gossip and slander and individualism and every other form of folly and sin. If you don't know what that means this morning, when I say to trust in Christ for those things, let me encourage you, find an elder or a staff member. We would love to help you begin to try to figure it all out. Let's pray, and then we'll prepare our hearts to take communion as we consider how this passage leads us to the table. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning and confess that my uh, mouth and my heart are still in need of grace. I'm grateful that You give it, and I pray that You might grant us all collectively, You might grant us the grace of changed heads and hearts and even mouths. May the words of this text go down into the inner parts of the body this morning and make us look more like Jesus. We pray these things because You're good, You do good, and so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.